Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Brent. How are we today? I'm good, thank you. Now, last week, we had an action-packed part of Mark's Gospel with the account of Jesus' transfiguration. Now, what happened there? So, Jesus goes up on the mountain, takes three disciples with him. Uh, and when they're up there, they see, uh, all of a sudden, you know, kind of the cloud comes down and <clears> Moses <throat> and Elijah appear. Uh, it's in, and Jesus is revealed in all his glory, that this is the one uh, who God has sent into the world. This is what we're seeing, that he is the king. Now, what have the disciples come to understand about Jesus? This, they, they, well, particularly Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So we can assume that they know that much, but they don't know what type of Christ is going to be. Mm. So we come to the first argument in today's passage, which runs from, this passage has a couple of arguments, yep. as in arguments <laughs> between people, uh, which runs from Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through to verse 37. And we see two things happening in the story, opposition and unbelief. Now, how do we see growing opposition and unbelief here, Ian? Well, there's been growing opposition the whole time Jesus has been kind of in his ministry. Uh, and what we're seeing that kind of culminate uh, with with people demanding things from Jesus, uh, with, we're seeing particularly the Pharisees uh, kind of come up against Jesus, and we're seeing that here again. Mm. Okay, let's read chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. This is the um, disciples who've just come down, the three who've just come down with Peter, James, and John, have just come down with Jesus from the mountain where he's been, Jesus has been transfigured. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Okay, now, what have we learned about Jesus and about the course of history in the previous transfiguration account? Jesus is heading to to his death, basically, is what, is what we're expecting. But he's also heading towards his glory. And so th we're expecting these, th these two things to, to culminate pretty soon. Uh, how will Jesus be glorified? We don't know yet, uh, but we, Jesus is, has predicted his death. How do we see mounting opposition to Jesus then in these verses? What, what we're seeing is that people uh, are kind of demanding of Jesus here, uh, but also, uh, you know, kind of they don't believe, you know, can, do they? You know, kind of there's, there's this sense of come and do this for me, um, you know, kind of, but your, your disciples can't do it and you can't, you know, kind of, you know, who's, who's going to actually heal this boy is a big question, isn't it? Yes, what actually happens when we get to the bottom of the mountain? We've had this wonderful transcendent experience up the mountaintop and now here we come smack bang down to reality and reality of opposition and indeed evil. It's like being on holidays and you get back to work and you're kind of like, oh my goodness. 
why did I go away? <laughs> you know, you kind of. I just had this wonderful trip away, and then you you get smacked in the face on the first morning back with all this work that you have to catch up on again. Yeah. How how are the teachers of the law at the bottom of what we see happening in this passage? What have they been up to while Jesus has been up the mountain? Yeah, yeah. But they've been arguing, haven't they? You know, they, they've got their own perspective on what's going on. Uh, and um, they, they missed all the action up the mountaintop, by the way. Yeah, and we don't see. They're, they're not told. We're not told exactly what they're arguing about, or kind of anything like that. But you know, they're there. And the teachers of the law have been kind of a serious problem for Jesus the whole way through. They keep sending kind of investigations out. That's what it seems to be to kind of check out on who Jesus is, because they are the ones uh, that kind of. Um, hold the keys to the interpretation of Scripture, basically. Mm. Uh, and so they're the trusted ones with Scripture. They're, they're the experts. Are the teachers of the law connected here, though, with evil and with an evil spirit? Is that the connection we're supposed to make here? Well, possibly. I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought of that one, but, it, yeah, well, it is possible. Yeah, and we see that Jesus kind of names them uh, as the ones that they're going to help put, put him to death, aren't they? Mm. So, you know, whether they're whether they are... Uh, pursuing the wrong kingdom is probably how I would put it. Rather than they're not they're not possessed, but they're pursuing the wrong kingdom, like mm. like many of us do. Why are they dis? Well, then then they're they're inadvertently doing Satan's will. Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah. Um, why are the disciples unable to deal with evil here? What what's going on? Why can't they cast this demon out? We're not told exactly. You know what the, what the problem is because they they must have been able to do it before because Jesus has sent them out previously to go and do his work and, and part of that was uh, kind of um, you know do, doing this this type of thing wasn't it you know exercising demons from people uh, but here we're not told all we're told is is what Jesus says there um, you know about how to do it you know they, they say why can't we do this kind of thing um, what verse is it that they uh, the so it's it's verses uh, verse uh, 18. Yes, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Yeah, mm. but later on, when they when they asked Jesus why they couldn't do it, you know, he he gives a, a, an interesting response, doesn't he? You know, kind of. Yes, this sort need prayer. Yeah. So have they not been praying? Maybe. Then? Is that maybe. The, is maybe that, yeah. Mm. You know, verse twenty nine. He replied, "This kind can come out only by prayer." Yeah, mm. I don't know. So ipso facto, they haven't been praying. Perhaps. How do we see growing opposition in both the physical and the spiritual realms here? You sense that go past the transfiguration, the evil is regrouping itself and about to attack. Well, it's it's lurking at the bottom of the mountain, isn't it? You know, God's on the top of the mountain, and it's almost like mm. he's gone to this ethereal place, uh, and then he's back down to reality, to the physical realm. And what what do we see? Opposition straight away. Mm. In what sense does the evil spirit represent the forces of chaos and decreation? Do you think? Well, look what he does to the boy. You know, he he dehumanizes the boy, doesn't he? You know, kind of the boy can't control himself. He's trying to. He's trying to undo his humanity, but even worse than that, he's trying to destroy the boy by throwing him into the fire and and things like that. You've got this, um, you know, kind of this it, it pure pure evil kind of idea here. This young child uh, being possessed by by, the, by this uh, demon and undoing his humanity. Mm. Yes, let's read on verses nineteen to twenty four of chapter nine. 
Uh, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, why is unbelief the issue in these verses, do you think? Well, that, that's been one of the big issues that, that has kept popping up the whole way through, Mark, is that Jesus is restricted uh, from doing his miracles when people don't believe, and particularly when he visits his hometown. That's one of the big things, isn't it? Mm. What are the two instances of unbelief we see here? Well, you've got the dad, and you kind of feel for the dad, don't you? You kind of help me in my unbelief. You know, kind of, you've got that. Um, what do you think is the other one? Is it the teachers of the law? It could be, but also the disciples. Yeah. They demonstrate unbelief too, in effect. Yeah. Is it is it their you know kind of their inability to cast out the demon is the problem? You know, kind of. Well, there seems to be the implication that this is uh, also due to some form of unbelief. They just they just aren't believing that they can do it yeah. or that Jesus can do it. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, kind of that, you know, the fact that, you know, kind of in 29 that, you know, this this can kind of come out by prayer is that are they, are they trying to do it out of their own will in, mm, in some could way? Could be. Uh, yeah. Rather than believing that God is the one that, that's able to do these things. Yeah. How does Jesus respond to the disciples there in verse 19? He's not. He's um, a little bit harsh. <laughs> he's a, he seems a bit exasperated, doesn't he? he kind of. Yes. You know, oh, unbelieving generation, you know, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. <laughs> you know, kind of, it's kind of odd, isn't it? You, know, you don't expect that from Jesus, but he seems kind of exasperated, I think. Yes. And how does Jesus respond to the father of the boy? Because that's interesting too. Well, he's, he's, I think he's much more caring with the father than he is with the disciples. You know, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe he's just fed up. With its disciples, he's been with them too long, or something. I, I, not really, but you know, particularly when the, when the uh, in twenty four, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, "I do believe! Help me overcome my unbelief." When Jesus saw the crowd, was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, "I command you, come out of him and never enter him again." You know, he he has compassion on the boy and on the father. I think you mm-hmm. kind of yeah. Yeah. Okay. Twenty five to twenty nine, and uh, where are we? And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All right, how does this account show us what evil does to people, do you reckon? Well, what we're seeing is kind of a, a heightened experience of what evil does, which is dehumanise people. And so we, put, we see it all around us, um, but probably in a less distilled form. This say. is intensely dramatic, isn't it? I mean, literally, it's picking, it's picking him up and throwing him into the fire and water. So we're seeing a yeah a very dramatic form of what evil does, which is seek to destroy, seek seek to dehumanise 
uh, us. And I, I think we, we probably see it, particularly in the Western world, in in less dramatic terms, but equally as, as bad. You know, kind of, it's, it, that's what evil seeks to do. It seeks to divide people. It seeks to, um, yeah, dehumanise us in a way that it, it means that we, we become debased. Mm. How and in what ways is Mark preparing us for a battle, do you think, in the rest of the Gospel? Well, this is what's to come, you know, basically, is that Jesus is about to continue, well, he, he will, he will face uh, ongoing evil, and that evil is about to culminate. It's interesting in Mark that you have kind of demons mentioned early on, and then they kind of, they seem to disappear, and then as Jesus starts to talk about his death and resurrection, they reappear again, uh, don't they? And then that's going to culminate at the end, I think, with, with Jesus' death. Mm. Do oh, we've talked about this already? I think. Do Jesus' words imply that the disciples are prayerless? Is that the problem of, of what's creating the the unbelief and yeah. causing the problem? I know we're not given the detail, are we? But it, it is a possibility. I did. I, I we skipped over twenty three. Sorry. Do we? Sorry. No. Well, you read it, but I I, I meant to mention it. Oh, okay. I, I think it's interesting the interaction that Jesus has with the dad. Yes. Yes. If you can. If you can. Yes. <laughs> you could read that. Yeah. You know, in several ways. If you. If you like, really offended. You know, kind of. If I can. You know, kind of. You know, everything's possible for him. But but you see again how belief is at the core of everything that's going on here. It just keeps getting mentioned. Yes. Well, prayerlessness is an issue with the disciples in Gethsemane, isn't it? Because Jesus says watch and pray, and they all fall asleep mm. at the very time that the enemy comes to take him. Yeah. And so once again, this is like a kind of uh, a, an early example of what happens. Their prayerlessness leads to destruction yeah. further on down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, verses 30 to 32 of chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Very curious, isn't it? Why, what does Jesus tell his disciples here then? This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. Uh, and each time, it's the, each time that it happens, the disciples kind of are withdrawing further and further uh, from, you know, kind of interaction with Jesus because they don't get get what this is going to look like. They don't get what it means. Mm. Where are the conflict and the unbelief and the opposition going to take Jesus to the cross ultimately? Mm. Uh, and you know, it's it's. It's like the people around Jesus become deranged in, in a, you know, not the disciples, obviously, but the, you know, the, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the rulers, they all become deranged thinking that Jesus is going to take their power, ultimately, which he, which he is. So they, they sit, they plot against Jesus to do that. But in doing that, you know, as, as we said before, they're really doing Satan's work, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, yes. Now, what is the disciples' response to Jesus' words here? I find this very curious. Yeah, isn't it? They... You know, verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and were, were afraid to ask him about it. You know, kind of, is it, a, is it a afraid that, you know, kind of the, the, that they're being impolite or something like that? Or is it that they're, they are genuinely scared about what's going to come? Could be either. Um, it was my next question. Why are they afraid to ask Jesus? I mean, it's the sort of thing you think if you're not clear about something you would ask, but maybe not. Well, well there's another case of not asking, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you compare it with what's just happened, they haven't asked 
in faith for this for the evil to be removed from this boy and here they are again not asking this time they're not asking jesus about what he means by resurrection yeah and we had that in in the previous passage as they're coming down the, the mountain you know they're talking amongst themselves asking uh what does it mean that the son of man will be, you know rise from the dead uh, but they they don't ask Jesus what that means, and they keep they they only talk about it amongst themselves about what that means. Mm. What does this passage teach us about all of us? Do you reckon? Unbelief's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It? yeah, yeah, and you know, real, realistically, none none of us have enough. None of us have enough belief. You know, kind of, uh, and we it show it shows in our prayerlessness. It shows you know, kind of in a whole bunch of ways, doesn't it? Uh, but. The good news is that Jesus is faithful and he has enough belief uh, in bringing, you know, by the fact that these disciples do not get it, but he will bring them into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of, they're models for that unbelief in a sense, you know, kind of in a positive way uh, of what Jesus is able to do. Okay, verses 33 to 37, uh, carrying on. And after all this, this this is fascinating. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So they've not asked him about the uh, resurrection, no, what it means. But they're too busy talking about who, which of them is going to be the greatest dude. What you, and they kept silent, for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> Dear. It's all of us, really, isn't it? And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the... the um, midst of them and taking him in his arms he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me okay now what this is the second argument in this passage what's this argument all about then who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom they know they're heading towards a kingdom right you know a new empire is coming uh but and so they they think it's a kingdom of power they think they think it's going to be a kingdom of violence but we're seeing the exact opposite happen here. It's that um, ultimately we, we will see that, and Jesus kind of hints, hints at what it's going to what, what it's going to look like. But they want to rule, you know. Kind of, they want to be in power. So, what is Jesus teaching us here then, in contrast to that? Well, his kingdom is the exact opposite of that. Now, to rule in that kingdom means to serve, just like him. Uh, and you know, it's the antithesis of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, that power doesn't come through uh, kind of ruling and, and influence and, and being important. Power comes through service and through um, loving others and, and doing things not for yourself but for others. Why does Jesus say what he says here about children? It's interesting that he uses the illustration of a child. Children were not considered all that important in the ancient world. I think that's the point, isn't it? It's not necessarily their innocence, but it's their unimportance. Uh, kind of in this context, mm-hmm. that you know that they they are important. You know, kind of they're the, you know the they, they don't produce anything. They're just a bit of a burden on people, and so you know they they're not seen as as important at all. But Jesus takes them and and puts puts his child in the middle of them. You know, kind of to, to prove his point. Yes, you need to be child. Well, not childlike, but well, yes, like a child. Um, in the terms of unimportant, but not necessarily yes, the yeah, in terms of, of yeah. being the least of all. Yeah. Uh, how does Jesus' kingdom then receive the least and the weakest? I suppose you've already answered that, haven't you? Well, isn't that's what his kingdom is about? Mm. You know, kind of. And th- this is one of the thing that, that fasc- things that fascinates me is that in churches you can have 
you know, people that have had you kind of live lives which we would look at them and, and with shock. Uh, and then, and at the same time, people who are well respected in the community, well respected in business, or whatever it is, all coming together and fellowshipping around the same King. You know, kind of this—it's something that Jesus is able to do, uh, that He's able to take all of us uh, and kind of show us. Actually, no, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. I'm here to unite people uh, around something much more important. And this kingdom is not about self-service, but Uh, about self-giving how can we all act like servants then and welcome the weak well i think i think you know particularly our church communities and you know just as us as uh, christians that you know no one is you know we're not too good for anyone is basically the does that make sense yeah Uh, you know the, the that you know everyone has the potential to be loved and accepted, you know, kind of in our communities uh, and looked after. Um, obviously, we're not naive, but, but you know, we do that in a way that Jesus does, that, that his kingdom is not about importance. It's actually, it's often about the opposite. It's about the unimportant. What do we do then if we feel defeated by our performance? I mean, we've seen the disciples definitely defeated by their performance. What do we, what do, we do if we feel defeated by our performance? Look at the disciples, <laughs> particularly Peter. You, know, you kind of that they often give me inspiration. <laughs> you kind of think if they can get in, surely I'm all right. Not not not, not in a way where I'm grading myself, but it, it, more in more in the sense that you know I look. You look to Jesus, don't you? In terms of his performance is what matters, not mine. You know, people often say, "Oh, it's not about works." You know, kind of. Mm. Actually, it is about works. But it's not about my works. That, that's the important thing. I can look to someone else's uh, performance rather than my own uh, to guarantee and have assurance that, that I'm in this kingdom. Right, there we are. Thank you, uh, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And um, thank you for uh, illuminating. This has been a fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed doing the series on Mark with you. It's been brilliant. Mm. Thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you, Ian. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.